Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey everyone, it's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. This week's episode features Kristen Wiley. She's the CEO and founder of Statusphere, uh, which is a micro-influencer agency, and she has a very interesting story. And if you missed last week's episode, it featured Jane Larkworthy. She's a beauty writer. I hope you enjoy the shows. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am so excited to be sitting across from Kristen Wiley. She is the CEO and founder of Statusphere. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great to see your face because we talk to each other often on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so full disclosure, we work with Statusphere as our partner for micro-influencer agency. We do a lot of work together for a lot of our brands. And we got to know each other because, tell us the story. I think, so Eleni, who works with you and is great, um, her sister was my roommate in college and um, graduated. And I saw Eleni was working up here and we started talking and that's how we connected. So it was kind of funny. Yeah, it's awesome um, because there's so much shadiness in the influencer world. So it's so wonderful to have like, you know, you feel like a family friend. Yeah, um, no, and we love working with you all. So it's, you have so many cool clients that you work with. And uh, it's just such a great like partnership to be able to, you know, have that moving forward. And it's just so funny how it's always comes back to like, oh, you know, this person and there's this person. It always comes back to like your network. <laughs> yeah. And like realizing that people want to help each mm-hmm. other. Which is exactly. So, nice. so I want to talk about your journey because it's so interesting. Like, right. So you, you founded and run an influencer agency now, but you are, were an influencer. Um, so take us all the way back to, I guess this is starts in college. Yeah. So in col- yeah. So back in college, my professor actually, um, I, I was an advertising public relations major at uh, University of Central Florida. And actually my, my very first class, he, he pulls us all in there and he's like, okay, intro to advertising. He's like, I recommend that if you want to make your age a benefit moving forward, because you, when you're young, it's going to be hard to get a job, learn everything you can about social media. And he's like, one of the best ways to do that is by starting a blog. He's like, just start one and just like, it doesn't matter what you write about, just do it. You're going to learn way more. Uh, and this was in 2010. And uh, that night I actually went home and started a blog and I blogged about the only thing I knew to blog about, which I love doing like crafting and recipes. Like Pinterest was like my favorite. Uh, so I created a blog, blog called Calling Shenanigans. Um, I've now learned you should pick a domain name that's easy to spell because that one's very hard uh. to spell. <laughs> no one can ever spell it. Um, but that's one of the many things I learned when creating the blog. Um, and I actually would create uh, test out Pinterest projects um, and kind of call shenanigans on them, like call BS if they work or not, because so many of them look really good, but then you test them and they don't. Uh, so I started growing that. Uh, over time, I would just post for fun, started kind of gaining this audience. And then before I knew it, I had some brands reaching out to me to do collaborations. And I was like, this is amazing. I can make like side money doing this. So I started. How, how, let's, um, I want to back up because. Yeah. Um, creating content is actually really hard, right? Good content creators make it look easy, but it takes a lot of time. So you're in school and this is a side gig because your professor recommended it. Um, How much time were you dedicating to um, busting the myths on these crafts? I was trying to do at least two a month in the beginning. I I think originally I was like once a week, but it ended up averaging out probably two to three a month. Um, And I would do them on like weekends. 
or, you know, depending on how my school schedule was. And I would find a recipe, pin it. Sometimes my roommates would help me in college to um, take photos. I mean, if you look at my first post, they're horrific. Like, they're so bad, like, it's almost embarrassing, but it's also, like, shows how far you've come. So I leave them there for that reason. Um, But it is really funny to look back at them. So was the focus crafts or food in the beginning? It was really both, probably more food though, baking, a lot of like baking stuff. That's what I enjoy. I'm not a great cook um, by any means. Baking is very different to me. It's much more like scientific and, you know, so I like that side of things. Um, But yeah, it was more on the baking side and it was doing like hacks to do like quick baking. So I did almost, I used a box for almost everything and adapted it. Um, So I had a lot of moms that followed me. That was my biggest audience was like moms and little girls. So how do you think they found you in the beginning? Because this is 2010. So yes. it's like a thousand years ago. Yeah, it really is. Um, it's funny because like there wasn't really Instagram. Like it had just come out in like, 2011 is when I joined it or something. Um, yeah, 2010, it was Facebook and Pinterest My were my two top sources of traffic. Uh, so I started the Facebook and it kind of like the Facebook page, business page for it. And it just kind of grew. I can't remember how many thousand it ended up with, but that was one of the better ones because people would share. And then Pinterest is like, because I think I was testing Pinterest projects, it just lent itself to Pinterest. Um, I really optimized for Pinterest, so I learned a ton about like the right photo like uh, dimensions for Pinterest and the right like SEO. And then I got internships, and it was at an SEO agency, so like I really got into my blog and like optimized it. Um, so it, I learned so. My, my professor was so right. I learned so much, and honestly, it's every job offer I've gotten since college is because of that blog. He was completely right. So, and do you think um, you would have learned that stuff in the classroom? There's no, yeah, there's no way I would have learned that in the classroom. I mean, I learned how to, you know, put together a website. I learned how to change the theme. I learned how to edit the meta, edit the tags, edit. Um, there's, yeah, I don't think there's any amount of teaching you can do unless you actually have a project that you're really passionate about. Um, it just pushes you, I think, to learn way more than you would otherwise through a book. <laughs> and um, were people, like, direct messaging? Did we even have direct message back then? Um, people... Facebook Facebook message. Right. It was really cute. Sometimes on Twitter, um, I wasn't big on Twitter or anything, but they would find me and they'd, I had like teachers, they'll be my whole class made this recipe and they'd tweet it at me. And that was like the coolest thing. Um, and then I started a YouTube off of it, um, which YouTube, oh my God, that's a whole nother animal. And I have so much respect for YouTubers because like, it's so much work. Um, but I did start that and kind of just like dabbled in it. So I, it was really great because I got to learn all this and I didn't realize I'd be using it down the road the way that I have. Um, but it allowed me to understand like these content creators and how much time they put into it. Um, and just have so much respect for them because it's not easy. (laughs) Right. I mean, um, I love watching the the baking ones or the cake decorating ones with my daughter on Instagram. And, you know, I consume it in six six seconds, 12 seconds. And I know it's, you know, half a day just to get that, you know, icing to pour the way they wanted it for the shot. It's, um, I think people who don't create content for a living really underestimate the amount of work it takes. No, for sure. And it's funny, like my friends would always laugh at me because like in our dorm and then eventually in my apartment, it's like there'd just be stuff everywhere. And I have all these weird backgrounds, like marble slabs and like wooden background because you have to get the right backgrounds for the photos. It's like those photos don't just happen. Like you take them for granted in the beginning, but when you want to recreate them, it's a lot of work. So, so um, what was your engagement like when brands started to reach out to you? Um, I think from a traffic perspective, I was around 10,000 views a month. And then at its peak, I was around 40,000 to 50,000, like 
during peak months of the year, which holidays were always peak for me because um, I had a lot of holiday recipes. Uh, so it started around the 10,000 mark um, and I got accepted into first, like I think some organically reached out and then I started researching these platforms that I could join as an influencer. And I got so excited when I got approved to the first one. Um, I was just like floored. Um, and actually my very first collaboration though was a brand that reached out to me through like my internship. It was a, a flat iron brand, a hair Flatiron. Um, and they gave me just the product for free in exchange for doing a post. And that ended up being my most popular post. It's how to curl your hair with a flat iron. And it had like 500,000 repins, like something insane. That's um, amazing. Yeah. So it was just, yeah, that, but I was so floored just to get a free product. Like it made my whole like year. <laughs> I bet. And um, were you really nervous to create that content knowing there was a, you know, a, a, it had more weight than just doing it for yourself? Yeah. I spent a lot more time on that content. I wanted to optimize it like to its full potential because I wanted to like show them. And I think that's why there are like smaller influencers try so hard because they want to show like how they're, how valuable they are and they know how important it is. Um, but yeah, I've spent so much time on that content. <laughs> and why do you think that one was like one of the best? I think it was partly because I tried so hard. Um, like I really did a lot of optimization on the keywords. Um, I learned how to do keyword research so that I would come up when people did search it in, in Pinterest and YouTube. Um, I did a lot of optimizing the content itself. So I created a different photo for every single social. Like I definitely went all out on that one. So I think it was that combination with just right timing. I think it's always like a combo of those two things. Like you have to put the effort in, but there's also a little bit of timing to go with it. Right. So, um, okay, let's talk about the the networks that you applied for. What was that like? Yeah. So back then there were- What year is this? This is probably 2012, 2013. Um, And I started applying to the different networks. Um, I would talk to other influencers and crafters and um, either on the recipe side or on the beauty side and just like see what they liked and disliked. Um, There was a conference in Orlando called like Florida BlogCon where you could connect with other bloggers. So I got to go there and I'd learn about more and I would apply for them. And then you have to kind of just sit and wait and see if you get in. Um, so that I think is just like the hardest part because there's different levels. There's the ones that are for the big influencers with 100,000 plus. You're never going to get those. But they started having these smaller ones pop up. Um, and I found like one of my favorite ones was like a smaller agency that was very like they pretty much they focus a lot on food. Um, I think it's called Pollinate. And then it was, I think, a woman who was a blogger who created hers, which I think was really cool. And I think she just understood the process. So she worked with a lot of moms and people who wanted to reach moms. So that's why I think I got into that one. And that was the first network that approved me. So. And what type of content did they ask you to create? Uh, blog content, mainly. So they were very much at that time focused just on blog content. So recipes? Recipes, yeah. Recipe creation was a big portion of it. Um, so like Hershey's chocolate or Coca-Cola or Edwards pies or yeah, those were all some of the collaborations that I worked on. And as you're doing this in the 2013 realm, and I only ask for dates because things like move like so fast. No, it's a great (laughs) point of reference because it's so different. It would be so different now for sure. Yeah. So um, did you, was this your full-time focus or did you have a day job? Yeah, I always had a day job. So it was always my side hustle that everyone kind of knew I had. Um, So I still had internships. I had started, my very first internship was at a PR agency. And oddly enough, this is in like when I, like this, that was 2010, 2011. And my job there was to reach out to mommy bloggers. Um, Once again, like I I was thinking back at this relatively recently. I'm like, that's pretty crazy that that was my job there. It was trade show research and reaching out to mommy bloggers. Um, To be honest, it wasn't a great experience because the agency just didn't have the kind of culture. They weren't very like friendly. Um, But 
it's so funny like how far it's can it's I've come from <laughs> from that. But that was my first internship, and then I was um then I started working at the SEO and content marketing agency. So it was like a perfect like transition. And that's where I learned the SEO content marketing pieces. I fell in love with content marketing. And I think that that's also why it showed through my blog, because that's where I could like apply with what I learned. And I ended up working there out of college. So they hired me. Um, So that was my first like, I guess, full time real agency job. And how long did you stay there? Um, Actually, four and a half years. Uh, So I stayed there until I left to start Statusphere. Um, And that was yeah, I, I loved my time there. And I actually it was very hard for me to leave because I loved be, the team there so much. And now we, we actually still work with them. Um, and they actually helped me with my content. So it's like a full circle. <laughs> so what inspired you to create Statusphere? Uh, so actually, while I was at this agency, uh, which I got thrown into kind of very quickly, at the, the time I was at the agency, the two um, founders had kind of split up. It was like mutual and it wasn't anything like bad. Um, but it kind of allowed me to move up kind of quicker than I would have otherwise. Um, and it allowed me to learn a lot about the business. So I got kind of thrown into proposals and, and like actual new business development and kind of just touched everything because we were a small agency. Um, so I am so thankful that happened because I learned so much about business itself. Um, and at the same time, we started getting requests for influencer marketing from our clients. And of course, my boss at the time was like, well, you're the only one that has remote experience in this. So here's a budget and go find a platform and do it. Um, so I was like, how hard can this be? Like I already, you know, I'm on platforms as an influencer, small influencer by, by any means, but like I can go on the other side. Um, so I started reaching out to all these influencers. and I was like, these platforms are just so tedious and time consuming and you're shipping products and then you're like waiting for them to post and then they never respond. And, um, and on the flip side, I, all the problems that I was having as an influencer on these platforms. Like I felt like they didn't care about me. And I felt like, like, especially the smaller influencers were, we were seeing the biggest impact on the agency side with our small influencers, but the platforms were all catering to the big influencers and to the brands more than they were the influencers. So I just felt like there was a hole there. Um, and that's where the idea originally came from. And our platform is a little different because we have kind of a subscription box mailed it into it, um, where we actually, once a month, we ship products to our influencers. So it makes it very timely and they know exactly when they're going to get their box and then they know when they need to post by. So that was very important to us. Um, so it's kind of a combination of influencer marketing with Birchbox meets Birchbox meets like match.com is how we describe it. <laughs> so. And um, how long did you sit on this idea of starting Statusphere before you actually did it? long time like two it was probably marinating for two years I bought the domain name like a year before I did anything so like I even had the name like a year before and how did you pick that name um oh my gosh I like drove everyone crazy because I was like knew I wanted to do it um and I would like just write all sorts of words like all the time all different words I liked um and I really liked the layers of the atmosphere so like stratosphere troposphere and I kept writing those and I was telling my boss at the agency I was at one day at work and he's super smart and I love his creativeness. And he was the one that I had status written on the paper and I had stratosphere and he's like statusphere. So I give him credit for actually melding the two. (laughs) So you were sat on this idea for two years. What did it take to make this happen? Like, did you need to build some sort of tech to make it happen? Like how did, how did this come about? Uh, so I wanted to test before I built anything, uh, to see like if it was even a viable solution. So my very first step was I threw up a landing page, just a little small website, um, that pretended I was real. So it said Statusphere. I even like mocked up a box and I was like, 
first subscription box for influencers. Like you just pick what products you want and you post about it. And then I messaged it to like a bunch of influencers I followed that didn't know me. And I was just like, hey, this is a new thing. Like click here to apply. And all of them applied. And then even some of their friends applied the next day. Oh my gosh. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is a sign. Like I should totally like, like I could not believe it. Like the next day I went in and I had like 12 applications and I only sent it to 10 girls. And I was like, this is awesome. So you didn't even have a box though. No, I literally had nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but I was like, okay, I think that I have something here. And then I applied to a local um, startup incubator accelerator in Orlando uh, called Starter Studio. And what they do is they take idea stage, like business ideas, and they help you vet them. Um, It's a nonprofit uh, so I did that while still working at the agency. He, I'm so lucky that he was so supportive of me doing this, but I would work the agency a day and I'd drive back and forth and I'd go to this, these kind of like classes and stuff at night. Um, and that's where I like vetted my idea and they kind of put you through like almost like a business school boot camp for it. Um, and then I launched it about four months later. And what learnings came out of the incubator that you weren't expecting? So they made us do customer interviews was like the biggest thing. Um, And I think it's something that a lot of people overlook or think they can't do it until you have a product. And I really like their view is like, you just pretend it exists, which is kind of how I started. (laughs) So I was very on board with that. Um, And I started just reaching out to people on LinkedIn. And I think my biggest takeaway was I was so surprised at how people like actually responded, like from big companies on LinkedIn. Um, And I'd get phone calls with them and just talk to them about my idea. And they were actually like, took time out of their day to talk to me. And some of them even ended up becoming customers later. Oh, um, so you linked in them and said, I'm working on incubating this idea. It's influencer marketing. Can I spend a few minutes talking to you about whether this would be right for a company like exactly. yours? Wow, it's awesome. And I think I was really afraid to do that before the, the accelerator. Um, but they really push you to do it and kind of go outside your comfort zone. And that was one of the biggest things I learned is like, don't be afraid to ask. And I think before I was a little bit more hesitant to ask for like help or feedback on stuff that wasn't perfect. So, Right. Okay. So um, you found yourself influencers. You have no box for them. How do you get customers? So actually the very first month I went and bought all the products myself, pretended I was working with these brands that I wasn't working with. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't, never said I worked with them. I never claimed that I do, but I went to like, I used to go to Marshall's because I could get higher end stuff at lower prices and I'd have to find sets of them because I wanted to get them to the influencers. So I look like a crazy person. I go to like four Marshalls and a TJ Maxx <laughs> buying the same hand cream. Um, and then I'd come home, take the stickers off, take photos of them. And then I'd say like, pick what you want in your box. And I'd just send it out. Um, so I started with that because I wanted to know like what price point would they be willing to claim in exchange for posting and would they actually post um so I sent out 10 boxes actually it was like eight boxes the first month and what's what I'm really proud of is those eight influencers like they're like still with us they don't even know that like they they were like just getting well now they know know. Um, they probably like it they're great I yeah I feel like I know all of them even though like I don't um but yeah so I sent out those eight boxes they all posted and I was like oh my gosh this is like because I wanted to make sure that that happened before I went to brands and actually sold it uh so that's where I started on that side and then on the brand side once I had that I had something to show them and be like, look, see, these influencers posted product. And then the brands were like, okay. And I remember when I sold my very first package to a brand that I didn't know. It was just like the best feeling in the world. Like when someone buys something that you came up with, like I, I think there's no, like nothing that compares to it. And what, did that feel like a hard sell? Like did they hem and haw for six months? Like, what, you know. No, actually it was a cold email. 
the founder of the company was a phone case company. The founder of the company connected me to their marketing guy. And he was like, okay. And he just sent me my money and, <laughs> and the cases. And I was like, oh my gosh. So yeah, that's that was the first client. Like paid one that wasn't a previous relationship because I did have some through the agency. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is awesome. I love the, is it is the word gumption? I don't even know of just saying like, okay, I have a box. Do you want to apply? And people apply and then say, okay, I'm putting stuff in the box, even though I just bought it at Marshall's. And will you post? And then they post it. It's pretty it, awesome. It's, it, it, yeah. Looking back, it's just so funny. But, um, but I, yeah, I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> um, if an, an entrepreneur approached you, would you give them the same advice? Like, just do it? Like, figure That's your always, way through it? Exactly. That's my, always my advice. Like, don't wait, like, just like you can have nothing. That's what I always tell them because they always are like, I need funding. I need money. I need a full platform. I'm like, no, you don't. Like they don't need to know it's not there. Like when people see the first version of our platform, like when, and I showed it to our tech team, they were like blown away. I was like, I know, I know it's bad, but it, it got me to where I am today. So like, if you start here, I think I, someone said like, if they're buying it and it's really rough, just imagine what they'll buy when you have something better. Oh, that's a good note. And it's like, that's so true. So So, at worst, they don't buy it. (laughs) Let's talk about this idea of claiming um, because it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through the process? Yeah. So influencers apply to be in the platform. Uh, We put them through three steps of vetting. So we have, uh, first, it goes through all their numerical data. We have like a little algorithm that runs through and looks for any irregularities. And we're always having to update it with Instagram and how it changes. Right. So like that would flush out like if they have bots and yeah, bots fake followers. Follower, and, yeah, yeah, fake followers. There's a lot of very interesting like trends you can see that look fishy and then you can weed them out from there. Um, once they make it through that phase, we actually have a human look over them and we we rate them on a, a bunch of different factors. Um, even like if they have like warm photography, if they're a professional photographer, if they're more of an iPhone photographer. Um, so then we vet them on those pieces. And then finally, once we approve them into the network, which at the end of the day, we only approve less than 10% um, who apply, then they fill out a profile about themselves. So then we get a le- another layer of data where it's like, okay, we know if they have a dog, we know if they have curly hair, sensitive skin. Um, and we use that data to actually batch them with the products that make the most sense for them. So once a month, they see four, typically four to five items um, that they can pick for their box. And they typically don't choose all of them, and we actually don't really want them to choose all of them because we want them to only pick the ones that make sense for them. But we do our best to match them with the ones that we think will fit their, their feed and their personality. Um, and then they ultimately pick. So they normally pick around three items um, for their box, which we find that this process leads to a lot more authenticity versus like just reaching out to an influencer and being like, I'll pay you $400. <laughs> you know, then they're going to be like, great. I don't care what the product is. I'll take the $400. This is much more curated. And they're actually picking it. Like we want them to pick it because they actually will use the product. Um, so it, it, it just kind of looks at influencer marketing a little differently. Right. It's almost like they're shopping the shelf themselves. Like what do I exactly. really want in my life? Exactly. Um, not just give me a bunch of free stuff. Exactly. Um, so, and that's exactly the mindset that we want them to have when doing it because, and it is a little bit of a hard line to toe because coming from that space, like I know how hard it is to do all those things. So I don't want to discredit them or feel like we're devaluing them by like not giving them a bunch of money with the product. Um, but we, that's why we try to position it in a way where it's like, we don't want to annoy you. We want to make this process as seamless as possible so that we, you know, don't have to pay a bunch of money and take out the authenticity factor. Right. So what, um, what is your process solving that you were really frustrated with when you were working with platforms as an influencer? 
So the process was so time consuming. So as an influencer, you pretty much have to write like an entire essay to apply to get an opportunity. But these opportunities you're applying for, you're typically get, trying to get 200 to like $500. So the reason they're paying you this much money is because you do have to do so much work up front that you'd have to do like 10 applications to get one product. Um, so when you really figure that out, like I was just filling out all of these sheets and all of my friends were doing the same thing, all the bloggers. And they're like, it just takes so long. And, and, and it's really funny, especially fashion influencers, they go sometimes buy products, take photos with them and return them. And it's like, if I'm doing that, like, why won't they just like, I'll do it in exchange for products sometimes just, but there weren't really opportunities for that, especially at the time. Um, and most of them, they just wanted you to do so much work up front. Um, I mean, it was just, it was like doing it, applying to college every time you wanted to work with one brand. Um, so we were trying to take out that process. It's like they were doing it all for the brand side, but not for the influencer side. Right. So, um, and also what about like the matching? Like, were you ever matched with like things that were completely inappropriate oh, for you? So inappropriate. Um, I mean, I was a food baking, crafting, um, mattress companies. Gosh, if another mattress company reached out to me, I was like, what am I going to do? Did you even look at my blog? Like they never did it. Um, I still have a screenshot and I actually put this in my deck cause like we did end up raising investor money later, but like I put it in my deck. Um, they pitched me a binge eating disorder promoting it right next to Sarah Lee Pound Cakes, this company, in the same email pitch. To Wait, me. so they wanted you to talk about your personal experience as a binge eater? Possibly. And then... And, and uh, the best thing is the top of the email said, this, these opportunities are picked just for you, colon. Talk about binge eating disorder and Sarah Lee Pound Cakes. <laughs> <laughs> Real <tone> email. <laughs> yeah, like who wrote that? Who's who could who sent that out? <laughs> right. Well, I feel like um in your line of work, unfortunately, there are too few humans involved in this, right? And that's mm -hmm. what I love about you. It's like there's a, a a lot of human components to the the matching and the um you know, supporting your your influencers and um, where you're just not, it's just not an algorithm pushing things out randomly. Exactly. And we want to, like, we know we can get even better and better at that with supporting data, but we never want to take out, I always tell people, I don't want to take out the human factor, especially even in the approval process. Everyone wants to take out the human factor. I'm like, you can't, like, I don't care how great your algorithm is. There needs to be a human factor. Too. Yeah. You know, it, it actually surprised me because we've been, you know, working with you for so long now and people were coming to me and they were talking about these platforms and I wasn't understanding what they were talking about. I'm like, oh, I get it. It's a computer, right? Like you're actually like, you don't, there's no human to talk to. There's no human to give you feedback. Like people are paying money, like basically like, you know, like an ATM machine, put the money yeah. in and then, you know, Exactly. Things One of happen. the most of the platforms I worked with at the agency, um, they cost around two thousand dollars a month. They were really like the yellow pages of influencer marketing. They just scroll through Instagram or YouTube or whatever and just index everyone, and then they make you sift through it. They make you reach out to them. They make you correspond. So it's more like a CRM slash yellow pages right. versus like an actual, we like to say we're like a cross between like more of the agency model and a platform because like we, we have a scalable process, but we also have the human touch piece. So you're building a business. What do you do in your free time? Yeah. Um, so there's not a lot of free time, as you probably know, <laughs> when you have a business. Um, and we also did the whole fundraising piece. So last year was just really chaotic um, because we did decide to go the fundraising route, which honestly, I would tell people, if you cannot raise funding, don't 
for sure, which everyone told me as well. Um, but when you are competing against platforms that all have millions of dollars in funding, like you're just going to get squashed. So that's why we made the strategic decision to kind of go that route. Um, so luckily, I feel like my free time ends up being traveling a lot. And then I try to take like little trips of like, okay, I'll tack on a couple extra days. Um, I spend a lot of time in San Francisco because that is where our investors are. So I've like had a lot of fun time and I try to like do little side trips here and there. Um, and then my other outlet is working out. I go to Orange Theory. I think it's like the most effective, efficient workout. And you can tell it was founded by a woman because it's very efficient. <laughs> um, but if I don't work out for a while, I go a little crazy. And do you have um, a very set schedule for yourself? Um, not too set schedule. Um, I, sometimes I go through weeks where you just like work a lot. Um, and since we do work on a monthly cycle, uh, there's certain like the first week of the month and the last week of the month are just like crazy. And then we kind of chill for the middle two weeks. Um, so it's, it, that's kind of our cycle or more of my schedule. Um, but overall, I think that I mean, we, we work a little later hours because we are on the East Coast and we do have a lot of West Coast clients. So we do the whole like 10 to 7 p.m. So that's normally our our work hours. <laughs> We're pretty flexible, kind of, you know, startup life. Um, but then I do work out at night. I'm a night person. I wonder if as you grow, you're going to have like two cycles. You're going to have your first of the month cycle and then a mid-month cycle. So that two weeks of chilling just sort of disappears, right? Yeah, it, possibly could happen. I can see it for sure. Like we've grown a lot in the last year. Um, so definitely open to it. And we're just like, right now we're working on the uh, updating our platform side just for like the brand experience too. I'm so excited about that. So that's what the middle two weeks have been focused on right now is like, okay, now I go into like tech platform mode. <laughs> and what is your dream and goal for the business, let's say for the next five years? Yeah, I mean, we'd love to be like the go-to micro-influencer marketing platform. Um, but honestly, on a bigger level, I think just even starting the company, I think the coolest part about influencer marketing is that consumers are picking what they want to promote, and it kind of brings the best products to the top. Um, so it, like, there's a study out there that's like 90% of women feel like advertisers don't understand them. It's kind of cool because I feel like we're making the women the advertiser themselves, so they can pick and choose what should be said about them. So I think from like a bigger perspective, that's always been the goal is kind of like allowing people to be the advertiser, the consumer to be the advertiser, which allows, you know, the best products to float to the top. Right. So as the brand, you can tell me, oh, actually like your product was picked like, you know, in milliseconds and yeah. then um, compare that to maybe a competitive, I don't know, a conditioner mm -hmm. six months ago, which was you know, took a long time to get cleaned. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it not only is it when they, I guess the picking, um, how quickly they pick is a lot to do with the packaging and how nice it looks. Um, but then once they get the product, um, a lot of the influencers, we actually tell them, we don't require them to post if they don't like the product. They can fill out a product feedback form in exchange for their post, which is still very in-depth because we want the brand to have something. But I almost feel like it's even more valuable sometimes than the post. Um, first of all, it kind of keeps negative posts from happening, which is valuable to the brand. But also, like, we want them to know what was wrong. Um, we want them to know. I mean, if a girl uses a cream and her face breaks out, like, I don't want her to, like, that's so fake. Don't post about it or post your honest opinion. But we don't want people just posting about it just because. Right. Um, so that's one of the other ways that we try to mitigate that. But it allows us to find out, like, if we send out 30 products and 10 of them are defective or 10 people break out, they probably should re, you know, look at their whole strategy here. So. Right. Yeah, that would be really valuable feedback, mm -hmm. like many focus groups. 
Mm-hmm, exactly, which we'd like to almost get into more of that as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of, I guess, big vision too, is just having a big enough network where you could almost just turn on thousands of people posting about a product where it's almost like instant virality in a way. Right. Um, that's like, I guess, like always been my big picture with it. So. Well, thank you so much for your wisdom today. Thanks so much for having me. I love hearing your story. And um, if you like this interview, please subscribe to us on iTunes. And for more information about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.